The text for this morning's sermon is 1 Corinthians 11. If you want to turn there in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 11. It's listed here in your handout, verses 16 through 34. I'll start in verse 17, and if Sam meant to draw attention to verse 16, I'll let him do that, but I think he might have been 17 through 34. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Father, those were sobering words that Paul gave to the church at Corinth. Father, they're instructive words for them, instructive words for us. Father, I pray that you would let Paul's correction correct our own hearts where there ought to be repentance. Father, I pray that it would be the Lord's Supper that we partake in when we gather together at Sovereign Grace. Lord, I just ask that Christ would be lifted up, that uh, we would be humbled, and that we would trust you have good things for us.
when Christ is the host. Father, we trust that this is a great supper. And so, Lord, I ask that you would uh, help us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, as we've been working through Luke, Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. We looked at it kind of within the context of Luke, uh, this last week of Jesus' life, this supper that he earnestly desired to eat with them. John 13 through John 17 takes place at this supper. An incredible amount of teaching, an incredible amount of instruction took place. Christ instituted this supper. No longer after this will there be an authentic uh, um, Passover that will take place until Christ returns. And we looked at the meaning of the Lord's Supper last week. That the bread representing his body represented his substitutionary atonement made on our behalf. Man is sin. Man must die. God has prepared a body. God has the Lamb of God that will be put forward as a sacrifice for His people. And in the bread that we eat together, as it represents Christ's body, we realize that Christ's death purchased the church and His body is every born-again believer that has been United together so that as we partake in this bread, we not only see Christ's love for us, but we see our collective union with one another in Christ. And how when we drink of the fruit of the vine, we, it represents his blood that inaugurated the new covenant in his blood all the promises to the believers that their sins would be forgiven, that God would be their God, that Christ's resurrection would be their resurrection, that there would be adoption into the family of God. All these things are bound up in the new covenant. And so, as Sinclair Ferguson said, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, die on the cross, raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. It's as though he leans in and says, when you gather, take this ring. Put it on your finger so that you realize my covenant that I have made with you, that you remember I love you. And so that you remember your love you ought to have in response to my love for you. And so that when we partake in the Lord's Supper together, 
It's not merely remembering. We call it communion because Christ is present with us in the Holy Spirit. He's present with us in each other. If you want to see Christ on this earth, you need to meet a believer that has the Holy Spirit living inside them, speaking the truthfulness of the Word of God to one another. And so we looked at the meaning of the Lord's Supper last week, that it's like an engagement moment. It's a reminder, it's a symbol of God's love for us in Christ, Christ's love for his disciples. And go read John. I'm going to send my helper to you. If I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again and get you. All those words were said at this supper. And this morning, we're going to see how the Corinthian church messed it all up. Christ is the host of the supper, but we can miss the meaning of it and mess it up. The cup of blessing can turn into a cup of discipline on God's people. So this ring is not my marriage when, when we partake, it's a sign of Christ's love for us. But just because it's a symbol doesn't, oh, it's just a ring. My marriage is no big deal. That doesn't make any sense. And so what we're going to see this morning is, uh, although it's just the sign, it's not your salvation. The meaning of it is so rich that in and so offensive to God when it's done wrongly that he, uh, as we'll see, even goes to the point of taking believers' lives uh, because they came to this table in a flippant uh, way. And so if you see your notes there, the charge of the message is don't approach the Lord's table casually, but earnestly. Discern the body of Christ. Discern the body of Christ, the church. And discern the new covenant in his blood. And often I get asked practical questions like, how often should we eat it? What should we eat and drink? Who should we eat it with? How should we eat it? I think we get some answers to those questions uh, in this text. So, This is a place that I admittedly say that maybe you came and you looked at the text and you said, oh no, this is, I don't like when we do communion. I don't like when we talk about communion. It leaves me feeling uh, maybe judged or upset and there is a sense that there's three areas of in ministry that where the rubber meets the road, where tensions build. And, and where I see it often is in premarital counseling. Two people saying, yeah, I love the Lord. I trust the Lord. 
And then in light of that, okay, you can't live together. You can't sleep together. You got to stop sleeping together before marriage. And then, well, I'll find a different pastor to do the wedding. Sorry for taking your time. And those are tense moments. And then baptism is can raise tensions as there is questions to be asked before we just baptize someone. There's testimonies to be heard. And then if you've ever watched an engagement happening live, either like in a movie or someone videotaping it, when the husband asks the wife to marry him, if there's any pause at that moment, everybody feels the tension of what's happening. Because one person is expressing such love, and if there's a sense of holding back, we can all see that it's a little bit uncomfortable. But for the Christian, the Lord's Supper is such a glorious thing. His love is so on the table, right in front of us, literally in the signs that when our hearts aren't loving him or there's bitterness or there's undealt with sin or division is hard. And so I recognize that. But it's good for us. It's good for us as Christians. It's wise. God had a good idea when he told believers to get baptized. It doesn't save you, but it was God's idea. And Christ had a good idea when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And it doesn't save you, but it's good for you and it's good for myself. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to just fly over chapter 10 to get us in the context a little bit, and then we'll look at chapter 11. We're going to ask ourselves the question, is it the Lord's Supper that we celebrate? Because Paul literally says, when you gather together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat together. What are you talking about? We got the bread and we got the wine and yeah, I know what you got. And what you partake in is not the Lord's Supper. In fact, I just want to point out a few verses, but look, look at chapter 11, verse 16. I actually did want to connect 16, but looking at your Bibles, you might not think so. Paul says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is not stirring up controversy by critiquing how they're doing the Lord's Supper. That's not his heart. Anyone who desires to raise contention in the church, Paul knows nothing of that sort of thing. That's not to be. And then in verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So when you come together, don't expect to be blessed in the way that you're doing it. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And then in verse 29, he says, if anyone eats or drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. Some of those that died, God killed so that they wouldn't be condemned by the world. They were so defaming the table that the reason why many of them were sick and were dying is because of the discipline of the Lord. Because they weren't careful. They weren't looking inward. And so for those reasons, we want we must look at the Lord's Supper. Now, everybody loves last week's sermon better, I bet. I do. <laughs> it, it, it's way better to watch Jesus say, I love you, than for the apostle to come and say, look, look how you messed it up. Look at the judgment of God that has already fallen but if we're wise, we want to listen to the apostle as well. And this is a church, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, they're proud, they're young, they're selfish, they're divisive. They like different preachers. Some like Paul, some like Apollos, some like Peter. They seem to have forgotten about Christ. Some of them think you can eat food offered to idols. Some think you can't. There's divisions there. And he says in verse chap, in chapter 10 and verse 1, I just want you to see this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea in all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. I want to remind you of people that were went through a sort of baptism as they were baptized into Moses, and he brought them through the judgment of God through the sea. As they ate the manna and drank out of the rock miraculously. 
He says, I want you to remember them because they partook all those elements, spiritual elements. In verse 5, it says, nevertheless, most of them, God, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So they ate the bread. They drank the miraculous water. And yet evil filled their hearts and God was not pleased with them. In verse 8, it says, he said, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell dead in a single day. Wow. For sexual immorality. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of the escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't believe the lie that you can't help it. You just have to sin. God hasn't put you in a position where you have to sin. Flee from idolatry. Flee from the grumbling. Free from the sexual immorality. Stop it. You're going to put him to the test? He struck 23,000 dead. And they all partook of the same spiritual things. And then he expects us to be have common sense. Look at verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants at the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord in the table of demons. And then here's the question. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Shall we do it? Shall Christ come with the ring, with this body, with this blood, and say, I love you. Look at the new covenant in my blood. And in that moment, do you want to tempt the spirit of grace and say, my grumbling, I'll keep it. It's deserved. My sexual sin that I'm messing around with, I'm going to, Keep it. I doubt 
he would kill anyone today. I doubt I would actually get sick. This is the context in which Paul's building up to a problem he's dealing with in Corinth. Shall we tempt the Lord to jealousy? And then look at his next question in 22. Are we stronger than he? (laughs) It's a good question. Are we stronger than he? Here's an awesome truth and a trembling truth in a good way. Christians, God is your father. And that is a wonderful truth. Now the trembling truth. He's a perfect father. And a perfect father who loves his children will not let his children go without what? Discipline. That's what Paul understands. And so he says, shall we provoke God to jealousy? One of the ways they provoke him to jealousy is they use their freedom in Christ to be selfish and to sin. That's that whole next section that he ends with. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Yes, you have liberty to eat whatever you want, but you're doing it in such a way that you're unloving to your brothers and sisters that were just caught in that idolatry. And he says, what are you doing? You're using your liberty to sin? Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And then he gets to chapter 11. When we forget that, when we forget to do that, the last verse in chapter 10, he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many that they may be saved. And Paul is already given a whole chapter in chapter 9, how he's laid down his rights. Because what they thought is, oh, now that I have liberty in Christ, there is no authority over me. Well, that's where they were wrong. Their liberty is to no longer be under the evil oppressor of sin. Sin no longer needs to have dominion over you. You've been freed from it. So you're going to go uh, submit again under that slavery? But it was never freedom out, out from under Christ or out from under God. And, and so at the beginning of chapter 11, he's talking about head coverings, which is all about authority. Women have forgot their authority that God has put over them in their husbands in husbands and Men who are supposedly love Christ have forgotten their head, Christ himself. And so it's a church that has lost its vision of who Christ is. They've lost the vision for who the body of Christ is. And they've lost a vision for Christ's authority over every believer's life. When we say Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, We're saying we're a slave to Christ. He gets to have his way. Your will be done, not my will. So that's what brings us up to verse 16. 
And let's just uh, look at this text and think about some of these questions. If anyone is inclined, he says in verse 16, to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God, but in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So probably in every church there's ever been, there's a mixture between those who are sincere and born again in those who are not. And you ought to see a faction and a division between those two. But that's not the only division Paul saw. He says in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So there's a way where we can do all the elements, we can do all this and not eat the Lord's Supper. There's a way where we can come to the cup of blessing and drink the cup of judgment or discipline, which ought to cause us to come before this table in a way that Paul teaches us to. He says, for in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For to ask the question, what should we eat and drink? The point is not that everyone gets full. It's not that this is some big fancy full meal. He's going to say in a few verses later here, if you're hungry, eat at home. The symbol is the point of the Lord's Supper when we gather together. It's not that we just feast and get full. We'll do that with Christ. This is the hors d'oeuvre until he returns and we eat it and feast with him in the kingdom of God. And then he says, and... Uh, at the end of verse, uh, or in verse 23, this is what we went through last week, so we won't spend uh, a lot of time on this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. That's him taking your place. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Does this text tell us how often to take the Lord's Supper? It doesn't. How often should we take it? The Bible doesn't tell us how often. It tells us when we take it, how we are to take it, and what manner 
we are to take it. And churches throughout the centuries, imagine if he would have just said every week, well, now do you, what if there's a snowstorm and you live in South Dakota and, and you're in a country church? But God said every week you got to take the Lord's Supper. Some churches do it every week. Some churches, we've been doing it once a month. Some churches do it quarterly. Scott and I were talking about this this morning. Right now, this week, if you want to argue that we should do it every week, now's the week to do it. <laughs> right now. I'm not going to sit here. I, I don't have any good arguments against someone that says, let's do it every week, except that I want to remind them, the Bible doesn't say, do it every week. So it's not a command that you have to do it every week. And I might ask the question, should we, like the Catholics, do it every day if it's really good? So, all that to say, we, need, we can't go further than what the Scripture says. And you can even see the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in the way we're given the Lord's Supper. We're not given it just in this strict box. But I can tell you this, that tension we feel of Jesus Christ saying, I love you might be good for our souls to do it every week. To, to remember who is the head of this church and what, who is the head of our lives. So if you want to argue with me, you're not going to get an argument. Unless you say, you have to do it <laughs> this way. And then he says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, or in verse 27, I mean, whoever therefore eats and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, there's a way you can, a manner in which you can eat it. You'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Well, what was going on in their hearts? God always cares about the hearts of the people. And the hearts of the people weren't discerning the body collectively. They were sinning against one another. They weren't loving one another. They didn't think each other was worthy to love. Even though... You read 1 John, what do you find out? If you say you love God and you don't love the body, you don't love God. You, can never, you never get to separate them because Jesus Christ who died for you bought a bride and you need to love his bride. And they come together as a package deal and so communion is challenging us on two levels. Christ himself and the body. And if our hearts are wayward, when we come to the communion table, we, we ought to discover it. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's an opportunity to be reminded that we need to humble ourselves, repent, and reconcile with one another. It's kind of like when, as a pastor, I get asked to pray spontaneously a lot. 
you know, here somewhere, and, oh, pastor, say a prayer for us. So, so you're saying prayers a lot. Well, prayers like that. Sometimes I'll be asked to pray, and my heart is full of Christ. Full of affections for Christ. And it feels so natural to pray. And then other times, when I'm asked to pray, I realize I've drifted. My heart is not, has not been leaning in to the Lord. This table is like that. And it's good for us. You don't examine yourself to find out if you're a sinner or not. You are a sinner. (laughs) What you want to find out is, the illustration Sinclair Ferguson gives is he says, any bride that just comes to a wedding like in her old tore up clothes, people are going to be offended. It's just, it's a big day. Look good for your husband. Now, we, we can't clean ourselves up in that forgive our own sins. But as Christ is saying, I love you, do you want to, in the most sincere way possible, repenting, say, Lord, I want to be holy. You purchased my life. Forgive me. Help me repent. Help me reconcile with my brother. But it's when we take of that meal and we stiff arm one another and we stiff arm Christ that Paul asks the question, are you stronger than he? (laughs) You're going to tempt him to jealousy in this intimate moment of, of reminding you of his love for you and for I? And so he says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, like I said, I think that's Christ's body. I think that's the body of Christ. That's what the Corinthians weren't discerning. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And so we're called to eat with discernment. Look at verse 31. If we judge ourselves truly. (laughs) Now here's what true judgment looks like. Lord, I'm a dog. This week, I was selfish in these areas. I was hard-hearted in these areas. I was just outright rebellious here. I have no hope, Lord, apart from Christ. Judge yourself truly. The Lord's table is for sinners. But as Mark Dever says, he says, there is no good news for unrepentant sinners. The Bible doesn't have any good news for unrepentant sinners. And what it means to become a Christian is, yes, to repent and put your trust in Christ and your justification, your your, your Account books before heaven are clear in Christ. Yes, that's true. In that moment that you're saved. But what about sanctification? 
Sanctification is what? Continual repentance until the day you die because you don't become perfected before you die. So faithfulness is not pretending like we arrive, but it's being honest with where we're at. So then if we come to the question, who should eat it? Who should we eat it with? The simple answer is this, Christians. But it's not just that simple. Because Paul is talking to Christians. The people that should eat it are Christians with a heart that is humble towards Christ and towards his body. Hearts that love Christ and hearts that love the body of Christ. And so whenever we do communion, when we get to this question, who can come to the table? I basically say the Lord's Supper is for Christians, those who love Christ in hunger and thirst to find their satisfaction in him by faith. So, Christians. And then I say the Lord's Supper is for those who have proclaimed their willingness to be identified with him by being obedient to baptism as a believer. Let me put it this way. So let's say you meet a friend, new friend at work, and you ask them if they go to church and they say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. And you say, oh, great, that's awesome. We're the same. <laughs> you, would, you would be a little bit foolish in this day and age to do that. Because you want to know what Christ do they believe in, right? Every church claims Christ. But what do we want to see? We want to see the statement of faith. We want them to explain what they believe about Jesus. And so we want Christians taking the Lord's Supper because as soon as Judas took the bread, he immediately, Christ sends him out. And then he eats the Lord's Supper with his disciples. We, we have an illustration right there. But the question is, is what Christ, what Lord's Supper do you want to take? And here's the two things you got to ask yourselves. The Christ of the Bible says this, anyone who's ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of them before the angels in heaven. So the, the, the Christ of the Bible, if you're going to follow him, you cannot be publicly ashamed of Christ. That's why the very first thing Christians are called to when they believe is what? Baptism. Why? Because baptism saves you? No. <laughs> it's a public proclamation of your faith in Christ and demonstration of what he's done invisibly in your life. Secondly, do you believe in the Christ who said, whose spirit through John wrote 1 John and says, if you love God, you'll love the brothers. Because there's a lot of people out there that want Christ, but they want to stiff arm the body of Christ. And what I want to say to them is, can you show me that Christ in the Bible? And so... At Sovereign Grace, we practice communion. It would be called close communion. 
Closed communion would be only for church members at Sovereign Grace. That would be closed communion. Close communion is for those who are trusting in Christ and are members of a a Bible-believing church somewhere. And someone might say, well, why do you pick those two things? Because that's what it means. Paul says, if you partake of it, not discerning the body of Christ, then we would, we're actually protecting you from the table. And so, which Lord's Supper are we taking? What warnings are we going to put on it? Because open communion sounds really good, but I think it's dangerous. Open communion just says, well, if you feel like you're a Christian in your own heart, well, come to the table. There's, there's absolutely no guarding who comes, even though we know how dangerous it can be. Now, there's a lot of good reasons. There's a lot of born-again people that come to Sovereign Grace that might not be members or maybe haven't been baptized as a believer And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, you should be obedient to what Christ called you to when you believed. When you believe, let's set up a baptism. And we would say, come join Sovereign Grace Church if you're not a member of a church. Now, the reasons for not becoming a member, there's there's some good ones. Still getting to know the church. You haven't been here that long? You're getting to know the church. Not understanding what the Bible says about church membership or what Sovereign Grace believes about it. You know, some cults require membership. So, does the Bible even say it's important? And what does Sovereign Grace say? What I would commend to you is the Sovereign Grace Church Covenant, which is everything in that covenant is what God calls us to as a church, saying we strive for it. There's verses behind every single part of it. So in one sense, to a true believer, I'd say, why wouldn't you want to commit to what the Bible says here at Sovereign Grace Church? Someone might not become a member because they don't affirm uh, the member's statement of faith. There could be doctrinal differences. Someone might not become a member because there's confusion or uncertainty about believer's baptism. That can be a tough issue uh, for people to understand. And they might just come to another conclusion. Or understanding how baptism connects to the Lord's Supper and then to church discipline. So the way you entered into the church is you got baptized as a believer. That's how people said, oh, they're in the church. And then as you were loving Christ and loving one another within the church, you had communion. And when, then when there was not repentance, when there was a rebellion against Christ, the last stage of church discipline was withholding communion. So not understanding maybe how those fit together could be a reason. But then in all those reasons, I would say are just take time. Let's talk about it. Let's learn about it. Let's have a discussion about it. But then there's other ones that are more concerning. Not seeing the inseparable bond between loving Christ and loving your brothers and sisters. 
in Christ. We need one another. You need Christ and you need one another. We're being fooled when we think, man, all I need is to show up on a Sunday morning and then and just uh, hold back. We're missing out on what Christ has for us. Unresolved hurt within the body could keep someone from becoming a church member. Unresolved hurt. We have all the things we need for reconciliation and forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There could be afraid of commitment and accountability to one another. A desire for autonomy. I just like to protect myself. I don't want to step in to commitment. And there, I just say, we love you though. And we need you. God's gifted you. The moment you are saved, you are filled with gifts of the Spirit. Don't hold back what God has put inside you. And then it could be the sin of neglect or laziness. I know I should, but I just haven't pressed in yet. And then there could be the unwillingness to part from any sin that is still loved. Because what it means to become a church member in our covenant is that we say, we believe faithful are the wounds of a friend. We believe that even we as believers can backslide to the point where we make ruin of our life and our marriages. And the protection we, you have when you commit to that covenant is you have 90 other people saying, I'll love you enough to have the hard conversation with you. I'll do it in love. I want to win you back. I don't want your marriage being blown up. And so that's why when we take the Lord's Supper, we want people to be baptized Christians who have committed to the body of Christ because that's what it means. That's what it means when we come together. And we're not closed off to members who visit here that are pressing into Christ personally and corporately. So, if this sermon or the Lord's Supper encroaches up on your toes a little bit and hurts, I think we can all agree it, 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 it does for all of us, but in a good way. Because all it does is it exposes the distance we have with one another or with Christ that can be taken away. We can lean into each other. We can love each other. And this is a good thing. And it's why it's worthy to not treat lightly. And so it's my prayer that when we take it together, that when we partake in this supper that Christ so wisely gave us, this supper is the most costly supper that was ever purchased in the world. It was his own body and it was his own blood. And yet, isn't it crazy that doing this symbolic thing 
might have as much power as the sermon that day to cause someone to say, you know what? Enough is enough. This porn addiction I have, it's going down because I'm tired of coming before this table like this. Or this selfishness in my life, Father, kill it. Help me kill it. It's my prayer that God just uses it powerfully within our midst. Father, (laughs) you are a God that is both glorious and also terrifying. And yet, knowing that you're our Father, We know there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing but apart from faith in Christ Jesus can save us. Baptism can't. The Lord's Supper can't. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, Father, we desire, though, to grow in love with you and with one another. So, Lord, I ask that you would use this text. Father, anything that I said that was untrue or unhelpful, Father, that it would go, just not be remembered. Father, use this text for the glory of Christ. Father, use it for the good in our hearts that we would be drawn more to him, that we would love him more, that we would love one another more. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.